Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of artists and writers over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life, the industry, politics, composition, whatever. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. I'm producing this with The Great Joe London, Big Deal Music Publishing, and Mega House Music Management. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, follow us on our socials, find out about special events, or buy some of our merchandise, go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. Oh, and if you enjoy this podcast, please rate us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast listening site is. We really appreciate that effort. 
So that, I remember that. That poor guy. Yeah. My sister was born there. I kind of remember that. Um, I think my mom told me it cost like thousands of dollars to have my brother and I in the U.S. and like, you know, $100 to have her in Sweden with the exact same like quality. Yeah. yeah, with the exact same quality. Uh, so we were there for a year and a half and then <clears throat> my dad got transferred to London. Um, How old were you at this time? I must have been like six. Yeah. And then, yeah, we arrived in London and set up camp in uh, a county called Surrey, which is like 40 minutes south of London. Did um, When did you start playing piano? Hmm. I assume piano was your first instrument. It was. Everyone in my household had to try us. We had to learn how to swim. We had to try a sport and try something musical just to kind of see what we gravitated to so that in our off time we had something to do. What was your sport? I never really had one. I guess I played like some tennis and soccer, you know. But you swam? Yeah, we just had to learn how to swim. That oh, was, like, it wasn't like a, you have to you have to be like a swimmer. It was like no, you no, just no. had to learn not to sink. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so none of no one in my family will sink. Right. And some of us know sports and some of us know music. But right. yeah, piano was my first instrument, but I hated practicing it. Like passionately hated it. Um and so I picked up a guitar and started teaching myself that and learning that. And then eventually went back to piano when I felt like I didn't have to practice. I've never been good at like having to do something. So were you playing all through your childhood? Were you in were you writing through your childhood? No, I didn't really understand. I mean, I was in a small town in England, like I didn't understand what a writer or producer was. I didn't even understand what an A and R any of that stuff was till I was around like nineteen, no twenty maybe. Um I remember uh, I taught guitar a lot, and I would write like, you know, guitar pieces, you know, like trying to like faux classical pieces and like that kind oh, of so stuff. Oh, so classical kind of guitar. Well, like yeah, mixed with like heavy metal. I don't know. Like I would like trying to combine them and you know all that kind of stuff. I was like really into shredding guitar, and so that was what I was. I'd spend some of my time doing. There's this really uh there's a good program called like guitar pro i think it's called or something like that and it's like called like the crappiest midi you know twangy sound and i would spend like hours putting like little shitty notes in and like trying to make something sound good you know so that was my first writing experience i guess was with on guitar pro writing like little guitar ballads and stuff did but, you did you have long hair I, were you like trying to be like super oh yeah metal? And i had like this and i had like this i got made fun of a lot because i had this like uh, leather jacket it was really way too big for me, like way too big for me. It was the only size I had left. I really wanted it. And in England, you get like one day a year, you get to go in, in regular clothes, and it would be the worst day. Because I would wear like the band t-shirt and like the extra large leather jacket, and it would be torturous. But Did you? Did people really make fun of you? Oh, yeah. Full on. Why did they make fun of you? I think anyone that's different is always singled out. I always feel like kids have like this primal instinct to smell fear and insecurity, you know? And without even knowing why, they like are able to form a group against a certain individual, you know? Yeah. And the older you get, I feel like the more that kind of is subdued a little bit in, you know, civilized culture, but something kind of very innate as kids that we we're able to like single out, you know? And I don't think I was super confident in myself, which is also what made it, you know, it's like shark smell, fear and blood in the water, you know? Um, and so because I didn't like conform to like the rest of the way people's hair was or dress code or music, you know. It's so weird because being as good as you are at guitar and piano, I would think that kids would 
admire that, but I I don't think that kids recognize how incredible um, talented musicians are as children. Like it's yeah. something that you grow into, where people start to recognize how crazy that is. But well, when I you're mean, in junior high, nobody understands that. Oh yeah, this guy can play, you know, yeah, two hundred fifty year old pieces of music, and then also shred on guitar. That's pretty nuts. Yeah, I think the reason I got so good at those instruments is because I wasn't invited to any of the parties or any of that stuff, so I spent all my nights and days playing. And I remember there was one moment, though, in my high school where I played, like, a Sweet Child of Mine or something in this, like, talent show or something. You know, it was, like, one of those cheesy moments. And I played the solo. I learned it, like, behind my head, you know, play the guitar. And then the next day, like, everyone was, like, really stoked on it. And that lasted about a day, but that felt pretty good. That was when people recognized, like, oh... He's actually doing like something, you know. At that point, did you want to be in a band? Yeah, I was in one too. What was your band called? Fuck, I don't even remember. We did like a battle of the bands. I forget. We played like all covers. And everyone else played originals, so we won. Because like, right, the crowd actually, everyone wanted to hear yeah, those. Yeah, exactly. Because right, right. the crowd were all like, "Fuck yeah!" Like and singing along, and they knew it all. You know, it's way harder to play originals. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's that thing of like, you, you recognize how valuable a song is when you're starting to play at a battle of bands and, and you know, they start to like the hit songs. They don't want to hear that yeah. shitty original. No, the biggest artists in the world, all they do is do covers all night long, like people songs that people already know, you know, whether it's from them, it doesn't really matter, but, you know. That's interesting. I guess it's true. It's like, you know, every time you pitch a song and an artist cu- cuts it, it's a cover. Yeah. And then every time they perform it, they're doing a cover of their own version of yeah. the song that somebody else wrote. Yeah, so people are always going to love it. That's why people want to hear hit records, you know, played live. Yeah. So how did you end up going to Berkeley? Um, Is the, I assume that's when you moved back to the U.S., right? Yeah. Well, Is your family still in the U.K.? No, they're out here now. Okay. In uh, Boston. Okay. Uh, so they all moved out with you, or you guys moved to Boston and then you started, and then you I went moved to, to Boston by myself because uh-huh. my sister and my brother were still in um, high school. Uh, and when my sister graduated high school, she and my parents, my brother's already in university out here, but she and my parents then made the full move over here. When uh, we've written before, we've talked about, you know, like. John Mayer, who's also a Berkeley grad, and how yeah. much that kind of like influenced you at the time. Was that that's the right era though, right? Right when you started going to Berkeley, is that when he was sort of at his peak? Oh, at his yeah, yeah, yeah. That was like when Continuum was out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, is that why you went to Berkeley, or is it totally just no, a coincidence? It's a coincidence. I mean, I uh, I did this program. It's like a one week program when I was like fifteen there because I had heard about, I think my dad had told me about music school, like Berkeley College of Music, and I needed something to do during the summer. And my parents were coming out here to see extended family. And I did it, and it like was mind-blowing because it was the first time where I literally had something in common with every single person at the school. Every single person I could talk to, you know, at the base level. Yeah, they were also the guy who stayed at home yeah, exactly. and played music. They're all totally. super losers. <laughs> like me. And... Uh, I just found that it was really awesome, and I actually felt like, you know, it's, it sounds cliche, but like fit in, you know, um, and I it was kind of intoxicating, and I wanted to go back, so I went back like the following year to do. There's like a five week, like you can do a month summer. It's like a summer camp, you know, there, and then after that, I was like, I have to go here. So it was the only school I applied to. It's so crazy, and I didn't get in twice. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, they denied me twice. 
So what did where did what did you do to, during that time? Mm. I mean, how old were you then? Seventeen. So what did you do after they didn't? I when I I was really sick. That's crazy. You were so determined that oh, you yeah. that you didn't care that you were being denied. You're like, I'm gonna get in. It wasn't like, uh, fine, then I'll go somewhere else. No, when like, my heart mm. is set on something, <clears throat> I have to do it. These yeah. days, I'm a little bit more patient, but back then I wasn't. Um, I uh, there's they do this thing like called the twelve week program, right? Which is like I'm laughing only because I don't think of you as being the most patient oh, guy. No. I'm like <laughs> I'm very impatient, but I'm much better than I was. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, I remember I really wanted like Green Day tickets, and my parents told me that I didn't have any money when I was younger, and I had to like clean the kitchen, you know, and they'd pay me like you know ten dollars or something like that, ten pounds. And so I remember like cleaning it three times in one day, which didn't really make sense. But then I expected like cash you know yeah but it didn't really work out that well but yeah anyway i'm much more patient now. i cleaned it three times so like yeah. kind of I mean, yeah, you cleaned it once and then like one wiped things yeah <laughs> um so did you go to the green day concert yeah yeah i still okay. like three times at this point in my life i used to go see bands all the time i've seen journey like five times for some reason really bon jovi maybe five or six times yeah that's crazy i mean you could probably write with some of these people now yeah i wrote with desmond child which is cool um, I haven't worked with John Bon Jovi yet. I know you have, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, well, you know, it didn't work out, but it was actually pretty cool because you know, I you only do how many songs you do karaoke of, you know, and yeah. like six of them are Bon Jovi songs, and so it was like the first time where I had this, <clears throat> I had a song written. And you know, I'm scrolling through this iPad that I have right here and like showing him the lyrics and we were going over the song and stuff and then, you know, which is basically him just doing karaoke of a song that I wrote. Yeah. You know? I mean it didn't make the last record, but it was definitely a moment that was pretty rad that he was singing karaoke to a song I wrote. No, it's incredible. It's kinda like a weird cosmic mind fuck. But uh I was probably about twenty years late for having a Bon Jovi <laughs> hit. I try to jam like artists' biggest songs with them, you know, for fun in the studio. Yeah. Just to say that, like, because it's fun, yeah. you know, you're a big fan. And, like, I'll just, like, pick up the guitar and play something and, you know. Do they sing? Who have you done that with? Enrique and Nick and. Do they actually uh, do they sing along with you when you're doing it? Or are they just yeah. looking at you like, just oh, for a second, stop yeah. doing it? No, I love it. It's yeah. great. Um, I always feel like that when you're writing with these guys. Like, I mean, I, I've I've sung duets with. Literally, like the best singers in the world sitting at a piano, where like yeah. one of us is singing harmony and we're looking at each other, and you're like, Michael Buble, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> like, why are we singing harmony with each other? Okay, so you're at Berkeley. Um, why yeah. it, is that where you start writing yeah, or producing? Well, so, to back up, oh, yeah, that's right. You didn't get in, yeah, I didn't get in. So, they have this, like, um, you know, if you're, if you're gonna transfer from another school or you wanted to take summer credits at Berkeley from another university, you can go and do it, and you can do some liberal arts and like the basic first semester courses. And I got into that, um, because I just really determined so they let me do that, and I got really good grades in all of the different courses, which are all first semester courses anyway, and so they let me in. Um, I was just really, one of my additions, I had like the flu or something. I'd go like straight to the hospital afterwards. And the, at the time also, they were auditioning. <clears throat> the auditioners weren't um, the same instrument as the one you were playing. So like I was auditioned by two trumpet players, you know, and like I was doing like heavy rock. I remember I played like some dream theater piece or something like that. And they were just not about it. So it's really, I mean, we've talked about this before, but... 
I have kind of I have a love hate relationship with people who play in in classical orchestras or jazz bands because they look down on yeah they traditionally look down on pop music and even though dream theater isn't exactly pop music you know bon jovi is yeah. and they look down on that as it being lesser than miles davis lesser than you know bartok but when you think about it those guys were just you know they were you know bon jovis of their time right. they're not like i mean Miles is a, is a little yeah. higher than that, but you know, like those guys. I, I mean, you could argue that that some of those guys, Coltrane or someone like that, is on the same level name wise as what Bon Jovi is to rock music. No, yeah, you could say Coltrane is to jazz what Jovi is to rock. I mean, it's weird, but like it on is. some level, people who yeah. you know, you talk to a trumpet player, and they they're gonna look down on the fact that it's like, oh yeah, well you write with whoever the pop artist is. And you're like, well, yeah. wait a minute. What do you think those people are? You know? Yeah, the pop, you know, pop hits like of their day. Yeah. It's like the Magic Flute by Mozart, number one record. Sick record. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite pop music. I'm not comparing. I'm not saying that the Bieber records are the same as, as Mozart, but I'm saying as far as like, you know, what popular music is. Yeah. That that they're still in something of a cover band. Yeah, they're also in a cover band. Right, they're playing. Yeah, big you know? hits. Anyway, so you get in, you start playing for the, you play for the trumpet guys. They don't like you. The yeah. last time you play, you finally play for a guitar pe- person. Yeah, and they didn't even make me audition the last time. I just had to do the courses, the summer oh, cool. courses. So I just went, and I was still in high school at the time. So I had to like fly back and forth a bunch to make sure I got both. I graduated high school and I got into Berkeley. Um, so I did that, and then it felt really good to be accepted there. And because, like I said, it was the only place I applied. So, um, yeah, started there, and you go through your first semester, think of meeting all these new people, and then by like the second year, like you don't speak to any of them anymore. You have like a whole new group of friends, and I think Berkeley was great for more than learning anything, just more socializing, you know, interacting with people on their own for the first time, being an individual, learning how to um, navigate social waters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So were you in a band there? Like, how did you, what's Mm. the transition that gets you from being, I'm a guitarist who's playing dream theater to like, oh yeah, here's a song or here's production. I guess yeah. someone is that where are you learning this at Berkeley or are you learning from other Berkeley people or like what what gets you from there to Los Angeles, California? Yeah, a couple things. So, you know, I was probably, you know, a um, big fish in a small pond where I was in England, you know, like probably the best guitar player in the school, all that kind of stuff. Right. Uh, and then when you go to music school like Berkeley, just like when you come out to LA and write songs, all of a sudden you're like this little dwarf, right? And then you have to decide, okay, is this really for me? Is this really what I want to do? Because you know these guys are so much better than me. And I decided, yeah, being a guitar player is not like what I want to be anymore. I really love playing guitar, but to get to be as good as these guys, I have to go through a whole bunch of hoops and obstacles that I don't. I'm not really interested in doing. You know, for like satisfaction, the reward would be. You know, being able to improvise really, really well or be, what is the best thing you could be, like a great session musician maybe? Like, right. you know, I mean, there's, it's an honor to be that great at an instrument, but for some reason for me it wasn't, didn't feel like at the time it was the right trajectory. So I was in a band and um, 
we it was like kind of like a hip hop pop thing, and we go play around, and I played guitar in the band, and it was hip hop, hip hop slash pop, yeah. Oh, cool. Hip hop. What was it? Hip hop. Yeah. I'm what was gonna, it called? I'm not gonna tell you. Um, like, why? Because there's music out. Yeah. So, are you for real not gonna say it? So I'm gonna have to track it down and make it part okay. of the intro. Crush Club. Hey. Yeah. Actually, that's how I first met. Like Damon Bunetta and the Bunettas is through Crush Club. For real? Yeah. Katie Welly too. A lot of like people in the beginning, beginning. Crazy. So you guys started playing around Boston? Yeah, we played around Boston and then we played around LA. And the other guy in the group, who actually is now in the Lost Kings, like that that DJ um duo. For real? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you keep in touch? Yeah. I mean obviously because we yeah. that's crazy. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of like a super group. No, it wasn't a super group. Why? I mean, you gotta be kidding. You're talking about people who have no credits end up in some sort of band out of any school, right. and they both end up having success independently is pretty crazy. And the other guy, the lead singer is Bryce uh, Vine. He's an artist that I signed to, and that's doing his thing independently too. So we all still stay in touch and make music. But uh, that's crazy. So Damon did did Damon. Benetta, did Julian Benetta, did Katie Welly, did they fly you out to LA or no? You just we we just came out here because one of the guys. So I'll tell you. So one of the guys lives out here. But I was in I was in the band, um, and Nick, the guy in Lost Kings, was kind of uh, producing everything. And I really was interested in that because I hated being on stage. I hated being in front of everybody, and I didn't want any of the limelight. And it was so scary to get up on there, and like I couldn't let loose. I couldn't relax ever, and. Uh, so I kind of dived into the production side of things. I was really interested in that, and I really loved arrangement. And um, I started doing like making beats by myself and stuff on my laptop. And the first couple of beats I made were for Kanye West, and I wouldn't let anyone else have them because they were for Kanye. But, but, you, but you didn't have any access to Kanye. No, it was no, stupid, no. and they but were probably just terrible. Right. It's just one of those things in the beginning. You feel you're so precious about everything because you've only done five things. Once you've done 500 things, you know you don't care anymore. Right. Um, Do you still have those beats? Somewhere. Do they know. have titles to the beats? I don't know. Probably. I don't Do you know. know what the titles were? I honestly can't remember. Okay. No. It was like seven computers ago. Yeah, yeah, um, Were you using Pro Tools? No, Logic Express. Ah, and reason. There you go. Yeah. Only way to make Kanye hits. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, and then I remember one. It was one semester that we were all gonna come out here, right, and like do a whole bunch of shit in LA with the band. And my dad, being a professor, wouldn't let me not be in college still. So I had to do internships out here for credit. And right at the last minute. Everyone bailed, and I was the only one left coming out here. So I came out here by myself, and I was like, "Fuck it, I'll make some, you know, connections." And I interned at like a whole bunch of different places, like RCA and Sony ATV, Atlantic. Um, interned for a studio that Mike Flynn owned. What um, were you doing there? Where? At, at all these any places. of these places. RCA I was in the publicity department. Um, Atlantic, I was in the radio promo department. Sony ATV was in A and R. And film licensing, and then I was like a, a runner at this studio called Harmony. Yeah, um, which is actually where they recorded Adele's um, "Someone Like You." Someone like you, yeah. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. So um, that's I mean, how valuable is that as like an entrepreneur to then have sort of been introduced to all these different things? It was great. 
Were you um, ever trying to tell them, like, hey, I want to be a songwriter or producer, or were you not sure what you wanted to be? Did you think about joining that side? After the my dark internships, side? yeah, I did. Just kidding, guys, who are listening. Yeah. You're not part of the dark side. You're our friends. What no, mean, but okay. Wait, the executive side? Or yeah, like, no, oh, but I mean, no. like, did you ever think about joining a label or a publisher or something? Mm, no, I mean, for a minute I did when I was there. I thought it was pretty cool, but... I was way more interested in producing, and I think like being there and having songwriters and producers, you know, call and answer the phone to them and have to put them through. I was like, "Holy shit, this is cool!" You know, there's like, you know, the sending songs back and forth. I like the whole process, and I was super interested in it, and I wanted to figure it out. So I just started producing way, way more, and like emailing and tweeting and like whatever I could, everybody in sight to see if I can get like one response. You know, the only like I'd say the. Only people that I remember actually having a dialogue with ever, and I'm sending out like hundreds of emails and Blaze Track and PMP Worldwide, like every fucking like uh, outlet you can have as a new producer, I took advantage of. But no, there's three people. One was Casey Robinson, who was uh, head of writer publisher relationships at BMI, and I lied to him and told him that someone that he knew thought it was important that we'd we'd meet, like we should meet. So I like called. What did you say? Uh, I'm not gonna say the person's name. That's really funny. Yeah, but I just lied and I said, "Oh yeah, you know, this person said that you and I should really talk." And he's like, "Oh yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, for sure, we should meet." And so that's how I whizzed my way into Casey's office. And he's he's, a pr- he's one of the producers of this podcast, so I get the oh, f- nice. I get the feeling that we can find the answer. I, I won't I won't yeah, blow yeah. up your spot though. Okay, so then uh, so he opens the door for you then. Yeah, he just kind of. In, you know, embraced me a little bit and, and helped me out, make some decisions, and set me up with some co-writes early on, and help you know mentor that part of my life. Um, it's weird how like a lot of young writers always ask for advice. You know, how do you get in? Or yeah. you know, they send you music and all this stuff, and you're like, I don't know. Call BMI, call ASCAP. To be honest, that's how like you got started with Casey. I got started with Casey. You got started with Casey. Yeah. The guy below us got started with Casey. The guy in the next room got started with Casey. You know, like yeah. like you send music to the, your your PROs. They have departments that are made for helping connect dots. You yeah. Know? No, seriously. And I was signed. I remember Samantha Cox signed my band like out of New York one year. I didn't give a shit about any. I was just like playing shows. I didn't get the songwriting community or whatever. And I realized, like, oh, I'm with BMI. Like, and it's not exactly like a, a difficult thing to sign with BMI. I think you just send. Yeah, you can just you automatically. Yeah, can. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I reached out there. DJ Frankie, funnily enough, was one of the only people that like consistently have a dialogue with me. And I'd send. Wow. Him, send From him, did Casey do the introduction? No, I just like found an email online. I just emailed him. And he was cool. I cold with emailed it. like hundreds of people. Like I'm not even kidding. But at the time, you're talking about DJ Frankie must have had you know yeah three times, yeah, and it just come off of like yeah. six huge hits. I mean, he's just yeah. a massive producer, and you're like so cold, cold, cold all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And he'd get back to me every time, and I was like, I found that super respectful. You know, being in the do position, you respond to all the emails that people send you? I try to because of that reason, and I think. You know, being in the position I am now, I know it's not as easy as like flipping a switch and then taking some from zero to a hundred. But all I cared about was that the guy was just get back to me. You know, I felt like, oh, there's some feedback, there's some sort of dialogue. It's okay. You know, it's all that's good enough. And then the only other person to get back to me was um, Nazri and his brother Niall. And they invited me up to the studio that day. I hit him up. And that was kind of the beginning of our relationship and my first publishing. So it was a them. cold call to the messengers. I think I just tweeted him. Yeah, a cold tweet. Yep, that's crazy. Yeah, 
I mean, people who tweet or send me messages through Instagram or whatever, I I barely know how to check it, let alone like respond to it and like have a dialogue. And it's and that's like an incredible thing that you can actually meet. Basically, yeah, through a cold tweet. Yeah. Hell yeah! So did they? Did you send them like a link and whatever, and then they're like, "Come on up." I think so. Yeah, I told them I went to Berkeley, and that helped because Nashu's partner Adam is like a super A plus musician, and they are, all their music, all their songs have always been musical and had you know involved play, you know, high level playing in some way. Um, so he liked that. Wait, and, so you're out of you're out of Berkeley at this point? Yeah, this is like once I've got like literally like. In the first couple months since I've graduated, I mean, you only graduated what four years ago? Two thousand eleven, I think. Whoa! Six wow, years. six years ago. Fuck. Yeah. Wow, you're getting old. Yeah. Quit. Retire um, soon, because it's only downhill from here. Um, it's not. I'm kidding. Um, I graduated like thirty five years ago. Nice. Okay, you be my songwriter of the year. Yeah, last exactly. Year. You peaked. Um, I peaked for sure. Um, okay, so. Uh, so you're starting to write with the messengers, and all of a sudden you end up with, like, how soon till you end up with, you know, feel this moment, which becomes a top five record. Yeah, uh, fuck, I worked like every day. They gave me like the small studio in Van Nuys, and I worked every day and every night tirelessly because they were gonna work on the Bieber record. Yeah, uh, believe and. Did you know who? I mean, obviously you knew who Bieber was at yeah, the time, yeah. but I knew who Bieber was. Yeah, I was I mean, still, I was very, in, you know, I knew a lot of people. I knew songwriter producers' names. You know, I was invested and I wanted them. Yeah, you wanted it bad yeah. enough for that. Yeah, and cool. I was, and they had done some stuff with Bieber, so I knew that there was an in there, and I worked really, really, really hard, um, and finally got a track, and Nazi wrote over it, and you know, sent it to Bieber. Bieber loved it and cut it right. And I was like, fuck yeah, finally. Like, I put in so much work and I got one cut, right? Which was the song? It was called I'll Make You Believe. Uh-huh. It didn't make the album. <laughs> and I remember Nasri coming out of the studio one day and I was feeling so good, so tired. And he just said, like, super quick, Band-Aid style. Like, not on, they're not taking the record. Scooter doesn't like it. It's not happening. Go back, make some more. And I was, like, devastated. But wow. that was my first, like, real feeling of, like, you know that deep in your chest, like bummed out because you just right. you had something, um, and then I just but got up, went back, and worked super super hard again every night, every night, every night, and we wrote all around the world, which made it on the album. You're on that same album with the same melody. I was gonna say yeah. like that's one of the notes I have. That's like one of my favorite things because people are always like, uh, people are always so nervous about you know other people having melodies and people stealing shit and that's only new to this generation of writers you know yeah and the first time we met I didn't even think about it but track one which was yours with all around the world right yeah and Iris was four songs later it's like I can take you out yeah, <laughs> it's literally exact the same, same exact melody yeah two four songs away and it's it's shocking how you know how oblivious people really are about you know melodies being the same it's like ah who cares there's only so many notes and we all listen to the same you know yeah. all great songwriters and producers listen to great musicians right and it's like in order to be a great chef you have to eat great food so you're bound to be influenced by the same things you're bound to run into the same you know notes especially when most pop music is only three or four chords like you're bound to hit the same intervals also depending on the culture of the time people are very inspired by you know 
the the like the music of the zeitgeist, the sound of the time, and so we're all going to be kind of pulling from that. So I, it's no surprise, but it never ever has upset me. I've never thought about like no. That's like one of my favorite conversations ever. It's like yeah. I think the first time we met, you were like, either you said it, somebody said it to me, but I'm pretty sure in our first conversation we ever had, you you said like, hey, you had the same. We had the same song on, yeah. on the Bieber album. We sold like four million copies or five million copies. No, it was, so was like, like biggest thing. You know, it was like a huge moment for him. That was the first time he had hits on the radio. You know, yeah. And for you, that had to be huge. So that huge. came out before Feel This Moment. Yeah. So uh, we did, okay. So we did the Bieber stuff, and then did uh, people start reaching out to you in particular, or was it still no, sort Nazi. of they were re- they were reaching out to Nas? Yeah, I, people didn't start reaching out to me till. Um, I started working with my manager, Lucas. Then feel this moment happens. Yep, and it's it's like a massive game changer for you. Yeah, right? we got Christina's vocals and and uh, Pitbull on it, and he did his whole, you know. But you, you know, Joe, you've had Fireball, like you know all of his like tags and all that stuff, and it's kind of awesome to get that. And it's like it's honestly the best feeling ever, especially when you're starting or at any time when you have an artist that you want to get on, you know, work with or whatever, and you have, get their vocals and you feel so excited. Yeah. You hear something fresh for the first time. And honestly, he really brings a song to life. Like, yeah. He's great. And but we always say, like, you know, it, for me, it's always like tone over skill. Yeah. You know, and he's skillful, but his tone is undeniable. And his performance, he makes you, Pitbull's like goal in the song is to make you feel happy and fun, right? And that that is literally accomplished on almost all of his records. You right. can't go to a club and if they play Pitbull, everyone gets like bored and apathetic. Like, no, people get hype, you know? Sure. So he accomplishes that really, really well. So it was cool to be part of like a fun record, you know, like a club record. And so, yeah, that was, I guess it was a game changer for me. It was validation that I was able to be a part of a hit record, you know? It was um, a really nice credit and really nice to hear on the radio and, how did that affect you personally? Like, did that affect your ego in any way? Did it affect your? No, I think I. Obviously, you know, my ego was inflated after that. But uh, I why think do you it say? Was, why do you say obviously? Well, I mean, because, like again, because again, it's like a validation. I think everyone that's really working hard is working for legitimacy. You know? Yeah. It's like you know, maybe Donald Trump doesn't care actually about being the president of the United States. He just wants to be the president. If you know right. what I mean? And. Um, that's Sorry, interesting. Political stance, but no, no, but no, that's but, true. That's a good example of somebody who's like, it, you get there and you're like, oh, you. A lot of people would just strive for legitimacy, right? Especially artists, you you want the um, adoration of your community, right? Andy Warhol like really tried hard for years to get into the art community, like really tried because he wanted the recognition from his peers, and there's nothing wrong with that, you know. And I think when you have a hit, you have success, it's kind of validation of, of all the work that you put in. And also, you don't really know where you sit on the totem pole of success in life. And and those things are great milestones of benchmarks to kind of, you know, gauge yourself on, you know, because it's just a, such a subjective industry that it's really difficult to tell, you know, creatively where you're at. Right. Um, so, and I struggle with that a lot, honestly. Um, what do you mean? Like not knowing where you're, where you are in comparison to your peers. No, like how, like how high you can go. You know, like how, 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 how do I put this the right way? I think that when I get upset with myself and I get down on myself, it's never because I did a, necessarily like a bad production or a bad job. It's because I know I have so much more potential and I didn't capitalize on it or I didn't reach that potential. 
So, do you feel that from once it's released, or do you feel that before it even gets? You no, know, for any situation, released. if a song doesn't work out, you know, I figure there's a there's a right amount of tweaks, you know, left turns, right turns that could have uh, made it work better, you know. And I didn't figure that out, and it bums me out. Not because the song didn't do well, but because I didn't figure out the answer. You know what I mean? And I have to go back and to the drawing board and figure that out again because I know I'm better than that. Have you ever had the answer? Do you know what I mean? When you're saying like, oh, when I have, you know, that I... I've had the answer a couple of times. It's worked out. You know, I've had a do couple of Do you look back records. even... Yeah, but even those huge records that you've had, like, do you ever look back and think, oh, man, I could have made that better? Or are you able to let go? I think I... When I know I've done a good job, I know I've done a good job. Uh-huh. Like, a few... Even other, if it's not a hit. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh... I'm very honest with myself and I'm and I'm okay when I if I don't do a good job I'm okay with it like you know if I don't think I've nailed it you know we can only do as good as we can all do right like it's it's not a perfect science and uh going back to the feeling legitimate I think you know with with feel this moment it gave me like a sense of like okay cool I am good enough to be here I am good enough to be in this industry and I can go higher um but it it was an eye-opening experience because I still wasn't being reached out to by anyone because I was an understudy, essentially. Um, and it wasn't until after that and after I realized that I wasn't getting a ton of work. Um, and also you realize that records like that, which are fun, pop-up tempo records, don't get you as much work as the records that are more culturally influential. Um, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, you ended up having those pretty shortly after that. But when you le- is that when you met your manager, Lucas? Yeah, so Nasri uh, and Adam went to go start a band called Magic, and that's what Nasri's goal was. You know, anyway, his whole life was to be an artist. So, and he already was an artist. So, when they did that, I really didn't have one, anyone to write with. I didn't know anyone in the songwriting community, and as you know, it's not. You know, as simple as picking up the phone and saying, let's get this person in with this person, like if they don't know each other. It's a very organic situation. You have to know people and you have to be uh, in the community. And I just wasn't. So uh, Barbara Kane, who I met through Casey at BMI, really helped me out. And I told her I needed a manager. And uh, she introduced me to Lucas Keller. And uh, Lucas was just setting up his own shop and for the first time. And just felt like he was really hungry and he understood me and I understood him and what we wanted to do and we kind of started off on that pop- Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So much of being a writer is branding and producing. Mm-hmm. 
did you have I know this this is something that we joked about not talking about, but I am curious, you know, it's like um I am I'm still in sessions sometimes where they're like, Oh yeah, yeah, I'm writing with Sir Nolan tomorrow. And they call you that. Were you called that before during the messenger stuff, or was this part of like the next step for you was to like, you know, people were I, I met you as Nolan Lambrosa, you know? Yeah. But people call you Sir Nolan, one way or the other. You know, is that a is that a decision at that point? There's a uh, a young artist I worked with, and back years ago, my English accent was heavier, uh-huh. so he would call me Sir Nolan. Yeah. And I thought I was funny, uh, and I didn't mind the name. And Adam and Nazri originally said, "Oh, we should have it as a brand." You know, it's sure. good to look there. You know, Doctor Luke and Stargate and Red One. And do people this, would much rather write with Sir Nolan than Nolan Lambrosa on paper, right? right? Yeah. Like, don't you want to write with the guy? Yeah. This guy's knighted. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you I know? Wish. like. But mm. like, oh uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, it's fine. I'm definitely not knighted, but maybe one day. <laughs> uh, so, and I brought it up to Lucas when I started working with him, and he thought it was a good idea to keep it, and again, it's to help establish the brand, and also creates a little distance from who you really are as to what to what you do, which is kind of nice, you know. Um, so, that's I mean, the name came about organically, and I didn't. I introduced myself. I don't say Sir Nolan. Ever. Sure. But did that? So then, Lucas is going out connecting dots, though introducing yes. like this guy's a hit writer. He's done feel this moment, and you know now you're working outside of the messengers. And what's the next step from him going from you know let's work together to yeah. the hits? So the first thing he did was bring me to this party, the AAM Friends and Family event, which is uh, is it around the Grammys or is it, yeah, yeah Grammys yeah and. You know, because they're trying to meet people in the community, and so he introduced me to Dan Battelle, who's a manager in town, and his client Simon Wilcox. And and I we we met briefly that night. It was kind of very in passing. You know, we didn't really speak. And um, they set up a session, and Lucas was like determined. I needed to work with Simon because he had worked with Simon on Breathe Carolina, and. So Simon and I got together, and I remember the first thing. One of the first things she said is that we wouldn't be very good writing together. Really? Because I said maybe we should do something for like Kelly Clarkson. She's like, I don't like to write with an artist in mind, and so I don't think it's you and I really going to make that good music. It's really funny. Yeah, and I'm sure she left that part out of her, <laughs> her story. But we'll, we'll add an amendment. Yeah, to, yeah. little asterisk. Right. Uh, so we started, yeah, we started working together and we did a couple of cool songs, worked with this girl Poppy on Island. Again, in the beginning, you take whatever you, you can, sure. you know. Uh, and not in a negative way, that was just like an opportunity that came up and we, we I was excited to work on it and we, we did some awesome songs with Poppy and then uh, they brought up Nick Jonas because he was also on Island and they liked what we had done with Poppy and Simon's manager, Dan, was uh, consulting at Island and we worked with Nick and again, didn't think, necessarily much of it because um, just taking whatever came our way and Nick was super talented and they wanted to find a real space for him as a solo artist and we wrote a song and the only session we ever had with him was that one day we wrote Jealous and didn't really think anything of it you know it's kind of it's probably pretty humbling because for sure there are songs where you're like oh, I've written a hit and they don't go anywhere and then to, to be wrong so positively? Oh, yeah, I was worried, too. I Why were you worried? Because I didn't know. I, I couldn't wrap my head around whether it was a hit or not, and they wanted it as the first single, and I was like, I have no idea if this is going to work or not. 
But I think I was I was just back then I was overthinking everything. I still overthink everything, but yeah, it's your forte. Yeah, but I <laughs> I think I use my ears more than my eyes now. Oh, that's interesting. You know what do you mean by that? I stop. I just you know if you want to know if if, if a song is going to be hidden or not, all you got to do is listen. You know, you got to just listen and feel it in your body and feel it. You know, feel the groove, feel the melody, and see what emotions pop up. You know. So, Naturally, organically, as opposed to thinking about who wrote it or when it's going to be released or who it's going to be released against or if it's going to go to radio, you know. Yeah, none of that makes a difference if mm-hmm. it's a hit, right? No. So then, "Jealous" ends up being your first number one song mm-hmm. on, and you're doing it on your own, and you're really the sole producer on it. I am the only producer on that record. So, yeah. and there's not, you know, even feel this moment, huge song, a lot of people attached to it, one yeah. way or the other, artists. Features, th- writers, producers, there's a whole, such a huge community of people that make that song work, which is great for yeah. that. But then Jealous happens, and it's like, this is Nolan. Yeah. That had to be like, that's when like the phone must have been just kind of nuts. Yes. I mean, it still is nuts because of that song, and you've had other songs since that. Yeah. Um, it was nice. You know, I'd worked with Adam for three years, and Adam is probably the most talented producer I've ever worked with. And he is. You know, he a genius and really good at delegating and explaining things. So he helped me go from a co-producer to a solo producer. You know, I probably even sent Adam jealous and said, "What do you think?" You know, yeah. I think to his credit, it was maybe even his idea to do that weird sound that you know the like the little yeah or do something like that. You know, so I always great to have that awesome creative ear at my disposal. Yeah, I don't think people actually produce songs 100% from the beginning to the end without showing another human. No, it's Like at some point, an A&R guy hears it or a, the artist hears it or somebody's going to hear it and be like, hey, why don't you try blank? And that yeah. may or may not work, but somebody's going to have an opinion. I don't think there's ever, you know, and the fact that you only had one person that you went to for an opinion and is kind of nuts. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Uh, right. So, yeah, I produced that. Well, my, so I was saying, you know, before I... He gave me the tools to be able to do it by myself, and at that point, I was able to do it, and I didn't even know what a finisher was. And then they label you as like a finisher, like you can finish a production, which I think is kind of bogus because if you, as soon as you put a record out, it's finished, right? So what is this like? All these hip hop records that are streaming on Spotify, crazy, the biggest records in the world, are they finished by masterful producers? No, they're just you know they just feel right and they put them out, you know. Ah, uh, that's interesting. The whole labeling situation just makes it easier for certain people to um, navigate, you know? Yeah, of course. But the truth is, I wasn't a finisher until I did Jealous, right? But because you were a finisher, I mean, but I in a lot of f- ways, that's what opens the door to the next hit. It is, but I think that I was lucky and Island really took a chance on me on that one, and it paid off, but there's a lot of other producers out there that aren't, necessarily given the shot to be a finisher because they've never been one before. But it's a catch-22 because how can you ever be a finisher unless you're given the opportunity to finish a record, right? Right. So it's it's kind of annoying because I, a lot of people, and again, it's the only way to really navigate the industry, but everyone looks at things on paper and uses their eyes and not always their ears. And I think a little faith goes a long way, you know, or can go a long way. 
Yeah. So I was lucky to have that opportunity to be given a record. Like, let's say if that if I would have been working on like a Rihanna record, no way in hell they would have let me do the production. All I mean, if, ja- if Jealous was a Rihanna record, yeah, so they would have added somebody. I wasn't a proven producer, so they would want to. It's like insurance, you know. Right. It's all. It's insurance. funny you say that now that like, you know, you're now some of your closest collaborators are people who do a lot of work with Rihanna. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. because you're a guy that they know they can finish records with. You know, it's oh, so weird. Yeah. I mean, I know that I'm skipping over a, a lot of songs out of this, but the next really big one is Good for You. Yeah. Which um you know, I mean, to bring you in on on a song like that, I remember at the time that was right when there was this debate over is Same Old Love the first single. Oh yeah. You know, and it was something where in her personal life, it's not really something she wanted to talk about as a first single, and she really loved "Good for You," yep. and and it was a thing where at the time it was like, oh, this is going to be a feeler record. I don't think that they thought this was going to be a smash. They thought it was going to be something that they can release and start the buzz again. It's a new label. It's her first song with Interscope, and then you know, but then they're like, okay, well, we got to make this song work. When you got that song, where you know the composition is. It's not like here's a smash chorus. Yeah. It's not the jealous chorus where you're like, here's the chorus. When you got that, were you like, yeah, this is going to be an easy thing to produce and tighten up? Because I, I get the feeling that this was the most incredible feat to make what was supposed to be a feeler record into a number one record is kind of crazy. Yeah, so I could explain it. Um, that song. Julia Michaels had played me the demo um, after she did it. Like, it was a, f- a few months before I worked on it, even. And she had played it to me, and I was like, holy shit, I think this is a fucking smash. Like, really? You loved it? Well, after Jealous, like I said, I, had, I really wanted to open my ears up because I was so. It, I was so overthinking that whole process and not listening to the song, and I felt like the song didn't sound like anything else, at the, you know, on radio. So I, I was, I was very compromised by jealous, and I really wanted to make my ears better, and I really just wanted to figure out how to hear a great song. And so she played me the demo, and I was like, "This thing is incredible. It needs a little production work, you know. It needs to be a little faster. It needs to have a little. The vocals need to be thicker. It needs to be more parts. But I think this is a huge chorus, and actually." I called Aaron Bashuk about it like the next day and just to not even to work on it, just to say, hey man, like I think you have this amazing song and it's called Good For You. And he's like, yeah, we like that song. I said, no, I think it's like a really big record. Like if you, you know, I think it's just a really big record. And he's like, yeah, we might put it out as like a feeler record, like you said, a vibe record. And I was like, okay, like I think it's bigger than that, but okay. And then go back to what you said, Selena switched her first single to Good For You uh, like two or three months later, I had that conversation with Aaron and he called me and said, hey, I know you really like this record and have a vision for it. You know, it's not going to be the first single. Do you want to take a stab at it? And I was like, hell yeah. And I knew exactly what to do. Yeah. There's a few times in my career where I could say like, I sat down and knew almost exactly what I needed to do. And Aaron actually, you know, we're talking about listening to other people and stuff. Aaron came by the studio and after I had done my initial first draft of it, kind of went through it with me and we took certain parts out, you know, and, and switched certain things around. Like collaborating like that is super important. Yeah. Um, so we kind of finished it up together actually. But He's a, a, a very trustworthy A&R guy. Yeah. You know, absolutely, which is a huge difference too. Yeah. So that, that comes out and it kind of does exactly what you hoped it would do. 
and it's a three week number one. I th- I remember thinking I thought it was gonna get as big as Two on did or something like that. I don't know why thinking that record. Maybe that record was out at the time, but I was like, it'll probably get as big as Two on. I didn't yeah. think it'd be a number one record. We were in. So this is kind of crazy. So you and I were in Miami working with Enrique mm-hmm. and Julia. Right. That's when, when it went number one. When it went number one, yeah. and it was. I want to say it was week two or week three that it was number one, and we were eating at we were eating brunch, and I remember, and um, and and I think Julia said like, "Hey, congrats! It's number it's number one for like the second week or it was second week or third week," and you were kind of like introspective about it, like yeah. it almost like it was almost hard for you to hear that. And then I remember the waitress coming by with pancakes, and you were like beaming with joy. Yeah. And it was this moment where we've talked about that since that this moment of like the anxiety that's attached to like a smash record versus like the joy of pancakes. You kind of would assume that somebody would say, "Hey, your song's number one for the third week," and you'd be like, "Drinks on me!" But yeah. instead, you were like, "Yeah." Yeah, and then the pancakes came. You're like, ah, pancakes! Everybody's got to take a bite. Yeah, why is that? I think, you know, it's a little pessimistic to say, but you know, when you're at songs at number one, there's only one way for it to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's down, and that's uh, it's kind of a scary thought because you, you know, <clears throat> all of us we start from zero every January, essentially, right? Holy shit! How do I figure this out again and again and again? And it causes a lot of anxiety and a lot of disconcern because there's no one way to do it and you keep having to adapt so I think at that point I was like that's cool but where the f- like I don't have a record on the way up right now what the hell do I do like how do I figure out that next look how do I get the next record to come up um, and you know it's like this feeling of it's bittersweet you know the bitterness is not it is the, the, the problem is that those records give you such a high, it's such a good feeling, you know? And when it's like a drug, and when it's taken away from you, you're kind of left feeling a little empty and like you want more and you don't know how to get more. So I think at that moment, it was the same with Jealous. And I, it was like an overload of uh, like excitement followed by like a huge crash, you know? And as the record peaked, the more, you know, and the more notoriety it got, the more I felt nervous and upset and like feeling like I need to figure out how to do it again, you know? It's so weird because, you know, Demi's Body Say or Nick Jonas, you know, uh, whichever one it was, the uh, Bacon, you know, some of these records that were singles but weren't really reacting. Yeah. You totally were like, ah, oh, well, they're not, they're not really working out. You were kind of disappointed, but you were like, you know, you put in the time, you like the songs, they should have gone, but they didn't. And you're on to the next one, and you just kind of like your personality was so different in the way that you were addressing those compared to the ones that you were like, oh my god, this is number one for the third week in a row, which is absolutely like astronomically difficult to do. I think it also goes back to that legitimacy thing, uh, and feeling like, you know, holy shit, maybe now everyone's gonna figure out that I'm the biggest fraud of all time. You know? This is your third huge hit, though. I know. It still didn't feel like I, you know what I mean. It still felt, and today even I'm gonna go write a song today, and I still feel like holy shit. Like, how am I gonna do anything good today? I have no idea. Yeah. Um. So, I think it's that feeling like, 
okay, it's like super exposed, you know, and having to find confidence and self-esteem to make sure that you can get up and do it again. And because failures and rejection is so scary, I think. And, you know, I talk actually about with Nick Jonas a lot. We talk and Simon about, you know, being a songwriter, you have to, it's like if you think about building house and then selling it, you have to want to build the house more than you, you sell it because you're probably going to end up building a lot more than you sell. So you have to get up every morning and want to just go hammer the nails, you know, then cash the check because yeah. there's a lot more hammering the nails than there is cashing the checks. Um, and we see it because we all write in this room and in general, you know, songs that don't get placed, but the outside world only sees the highlights. No one sees behind the scenes. And there's the toughest part because behind the scenes, you know, you struggle with a lot of rejection in the music industry. A lot of songs don't make it. So you have to figure out a way to get up in the morning and do it again and again. And the only way to do that is to actually love the building process. Um, yeah, trying to explain to people that, okay, so if you have a 95% failure rate, that makes you m- one of the best songwriters in the world. Yeah. So, you know, no other sport, no other business do you walk in knowing that w- only one day a month, on average, one, you know, whatever that is, 1.3 days a month, you're going to write a song that has potential. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Actually, there are only there are only twenty work days in a in a month. So one one day a month, you're going to write something that has potential to make money, and that would mean that you have twelve songs that make money in a year. So if you have twelve cuts, you are at the very top. And if any of those are hits, you're like you're in the the upper echelon. That's one of the things Max always talks about too. Is like you know, it's if you have one song a year that's a hit, you're yeah. one of the biggest songwriters of all time. Yeah. That's you know, if cool you can do that, it. if you think about it like that, all you need is one one hit a year. Yeah. You know, makes you one of the biggest songwriters of all time, not right now, <laughs> of all time. Right, because of the percentage of how many people write songs, right? Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And you work every day, every single day, just for one glimpse. Yeah. You know? But do you, it's good. You, right now, you're kind of on a run. You have a. I feel like you've got you're starting to get a lot of singles out and it's like you hear all this buzz and of these songs and I know some stuff that you have coming out. Um do you are you able to um is it exciting to be in a place knowing that you have songs that are on the rise and songs that are coming out or does that just or is or are you just keeping your head down while you walk into a studio? Um I think it's I think the only thing that that counterbalances the nervousness and anxiety of that is knowing that these are really good songs. I think we all feel the same way when you there's nothing better than writing a really good song and you're like, "Oh shit, this is a really good song and it feels good." And, you know, when you when you have a really good song, it does a lot of the work for you, like we were talking about earlier. Uh, you don't want to have a mediocre song and have to do fight an uphill battle to get anything from it. So, it's been nice to have spent a lot of time this year just writing with great people and writing really good songs. And having these songs start to, you know, find their way out, you know, into the light, and it's a good feeling. It's like I said, it's both. It's it's a good feeling to know that they are great songs, and I'm very proud of them, uh, and that gives me a lot of confidence and makes me feel good. And but it's also very nervous because if they don't work out, then it's figuring out how to do it again, you know, and again yeah. and again and again. Um, Still got to go to that session. Yeah. Still got to write. Uh, well, that's I mean, where the idea of like when you're writing with your friends, it's easy. You're just like, yeah, okay, cool. Well, then it's like, so what? Who cares if we don't write a hit today? At least we had fun. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and 
you know, I did a record with Stargate called Flex, the Fifth Harmony record. Mm -hmm. And that was like, I felt that was a good record. You know, it, it was an important record just to keep things moving and it was a hit and it was um, it was good, but I'm really looking for my next, like, you know, uh, flagship record. Yeah. Well, hopefully... Not to say anything negative about that No, song. I just hope that it's... I, I just hope your next big one is the one that we have coming up. Oh, yeah, that's true. That'd be nice. <laughs> but I won't, I won't say anything about that right now. Um, uh, maybe by the time this podcast comes out, it will be, so then I can put that in the intro. Um, you have a publishing company now. Yeah. You know, like you've signed, you're signing producers. Mm -hmm. You're, you know, you've got a record company. You've got an artist who does very well streaming and whatnot. You know, do you see yourself now starting to move over to the other side, or is it just like this is just a blast and you're just making music and whatever happens next happens? I think like, you know, the more successful you get, the more you have to manage success. So I think you're automatically going to have to go into some sort of a managerial executive role. Um, make decisions, you know, be administrational. Uh, and actually I think the thing that some of these guys struggle with most is how to keep, you know, quality at an all-time high when you're having to manage like a, a whole empire, you know? Yeah. And so I'm on a very small scale uh, building, but it's all, you know, start to the creative process. So, uh, and goes back to it. And that's the foundation of all my relationships. So with the producers, it's less about, being a publisher as it is helping being like a production mentor and helping them understand how to get better and having them help me on things and, and you know, just gathering different perspectives on uh, creating music. And I'm It kind of makes you a better producer when you're absolutely. constantly telling these other people what would make their productions better. It makes you, reminds you very quickly to be like, oh yeah, why am I doing that? I wouldn't tell myself that. You know, I would, or yeah. I would tell myself to make it better. It's like when you have people, you know, underneath you. It's also like makes you a better writer. It's also challenging because not a lot of times you can explain things, right? You just do them. So if you, you know, if if you if I hear something that's wrong, I'll just fix it. And it's so much easier to just fix it than ex figuring out how to explain to fix it. Because a lot of it you can't really explain, right? The energy isn't right. It needs to be grittier. Like what are these? It needs to be more urgent. Like all the buzzwords that you hear, like. Having to explain that in in actual, like, you know, when an A&R says, I need more urgent, okay. So what I think of, I think, of, okay, tempo, I think. Maybe nudge the vocals a little bit further, maybe like a little more less attack on the vocals so that the punch comes through, you know. And then maybe more of a 16th note rhythm. Like, you know, there's a thousand different, you have to think of literal things to, to say instead of just doing trial and error. So it forces you to understand what you do a little bit more, I think, because it's a very, it's an intangible, you know. Sure. All right, we're going to play a game where I list five things, and you're just going to tell me the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Okay. I'm naming some of your co-writers and artists. So, first one, Enrique Iglesias. Nicest guy ever. He's so fun. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, Nazri. Mentor. I feel like you have to do Adam, too, then. Adam Messenger. Yeah, the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Julia Michaels. Probably the most special woman I've ever known in my life. That's awesome. Other than my mother. Ryan Press, our publisher. He's got my back, like 100%, you know? Yeah. Simon Wilcox. Friendship. Yeah. And then finally, what's a message you have for up-and-coming writers? I'd say reach out to BMI or your PROs, you know? Like, no inspirational shit, just factual. Reach out to PROs and start making connections there. It's very easy. Focus on 
what you do best and figure out what your voice is as an individual, as a writer and producer. Try not to make things that sound like they've already been out because by the time your record comes out, it'll be, it'll be done and you need to have your own identity anyway. And working hard always gets you further than natural talent, honestly. There's a famous quote, and I think they, I, I heard that it was Jack Nicholson, but I think it's like 50 people have been credited with this, where they were asked, what's your, what's advice you give young actors in Los Angeles? And, and, and he said, uh, take fountain. Which I think, which I think <laughs> is great. Funny. It's like you'd much rather know. Just hit up BMI, hit up ASCAP. Like there's nothing. There's no magic bullet. Yeah. You know, like you better. You know, you have to learn your your songwriting. But we know a lot of uh, people who are successful because they have ambition more than talent. Yeah. So it's like you know, I would say, you know, try to keep pushing the the ambition part. Yeah, over. just work yeah. super hard. Well, Nolan Lambrosa. You and I have become friends over the last few years and genuine friends because I think you're honest and you're funny and you're satirical and I think you have grown into somebody in the music industry. You know, it's it's hard to be young in the music business and you were so young when you joined as a producer and there's only a handful of producers that have been successful from whatever 22 23 years old and younger you know and and for you to have have to grow up in front of the industry and handle the pressure of being a finisher at a young age to understanding how to communicate with all kinds of artists writers producers it's really difficult and I see you becoming a really important person in this business and I'm proud of you and it's so fun that we get to work together on a regular basis and thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to David Silberstein from Mega House Music and Michael White. On the next episode, we sit down with Babyface. Until next time... This is Ross Golan. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.